recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Father, we're here to hear from you. Lord, in every part of this service, that's what our heart longs for, to know you and to draw nearer to you. And Lord, as we come around your word, we just ask for your Holy Spirit to continue the work that he's already begun in our hearts, that you will continue to speak and, and encourage and strengthen and build us up in our, in our knowledge of your love for us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's great to be here. Happy Mother's Day to all the mums and grandmas, and uh, we just hope that you have a wonderful day. Uh, but motherhood, it's an interesting journey, um, and uh, wherever you are at on that journey, uh, in some ways, it shapes and defines our identity, and that's what we're wanting to talk about today, identity. Uh, and we're beginning a new series uh, called Who You Say I Am because we want to engage with this idea of, I guess, how do we know who we are? Now, growing up and throughout my life, and even today, I, I have moments of identity confusion. I'll admit it. Uh, so many times I've been asked to prove my identity, being Hillary. Um, it's generated quite a bit of confusion when Dash and I meet people. They turn to her and go, hi, Hillary. Hi, Dash. And I go, no, 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 other way around. Um, there, were, there were two moments that I remember it particularly um, when I was getting my, uh, going for my driving lessons and the driving instructor came and he said, oh, I'm here for Hillary. And I, I walked out and said, well, let's go. He says, no, 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 I'm, I'm here for your sister. I go, I don't have a sister. I go, well, I'm here for Hillary. I go, that's me. He goes, can I see your driver's license? I'm like, seriously? So I had to kind of pull it out and show it to him. And another time, similar incident, at an airport where you know, I was paged over the intercom and I had to go to the check-in counter for something or other. And I went up and I said, um, I was just paged, um, Hillary. And they're like, you're Hillary? I go, yes, I'm Hillary. They go, can we see your passport, please? It happens. It still happens. Like people ring up the church office and go, well, I want to speak to Hillary. And I go, speaking. And they go, I go, that's me. Okay. Confusion. And I wonder if you've had moments like that where you were confused about who you were and what your identity was. And maybe it was over a period of transition uh, where something that defined you no longer defined you and, and you were confused as to now, who am I now? For many of us who've come from a different country, you probably had that moment when you were trying to figure out what does it mean now to, to be in this new country and embrace a new cultural identity? What does that mean? And so we want to engage with this idea in this series looking at where, where do we get our sense of identity from? How do we really know who we are? And what does God say about us and about who we are? And how does that shape the way we live in this world? And what are the things that threaten and try to steal our identity in our culture now? We have this thing called identity theft, which is a very new thing. Um, it's been around for a little while, but it's a, a serious problem, a serious issue. But spiritually, there are identity thefts that happen all the time as well. And trying to identify who are these identity thieves and how do we work against the, the work that they're trying to accomplish in our lives. And how does knowing who we are in Christ transform us in how we live out our everyday lives? So that's kind of a little bit of the journey that we're going to go on. So let me ask you, how do you define yourself? 
If someone were to ask you, who are you? What would you say? Now, if you're anything like me or like many of us, you would probably resort to a category or two. You'd say, well, I'm, you, you define yourself by your gender, by maybe your work, by maybe the age bracket you're in in life, maybe your social economic standard, maybe by your training, maybe by your career, uh, maybe by some other category. More recently, you might define yourself whether you're an iPhone or Samsung person, whether you're a cat or a dog person, whether you scrunch or fold, that's an old one, you know, referring to toilet paper. Um, all kinds of different categories that you might say, no, that's who I am. That's what defines me. But the problem is that if we try and force complicated, complex, diverse, uh, multifaceted human beings into categories like that, they can let us down. As helpful as categories are, as helpful as they give us some sense of who we are as people, if we try to put all of ourselves into those categories, they're going to fail us. And maybe you've experienced some of these failures. I certainly have. One of those failures is that these categories, if we're relying on them completely and totally to define us, can feel suffocating at times. They can feel really constricting and limiting. And I've experienced this when I do Myers-Briggs surveys or any other personality survey. And Maybe you've done them. And you're kind of answering the questions and you go, I don't know which one to pick. Like, I'm kind of neither. And then you get the results and you kind of go, Yes, some of this stuff is pretty accurate, but some of this other stuff, it's just not me. And the danger of that is that we can find ourselves trying now to live up to the ideal of those categories, whatever that might be. And we, we feel the pressure of having to put on a false self in order to live up to the, the ideal or the expectations of those categories. Researchers tell us that the number of people that lie on their resumes is astronomical. They project themselves as being more than they really are, the false self, because of the suffocation. A second threat or a second danger of relying on these categories is is this idea of destabilization. And that's relevant to us on Mother's Day because some of us have dreamed all along of being a mother. And then we kind of struggle when that reality isn't achieved and we don't know how to make sense of that. Or if we're at the end stages of our parenting, mothers and dads, and our kids leave home, and all of a sudden now we have to redefine our understanding of what it means to be a parent. Or whether we have long-term unemployment, if our whole life has been understanding ourselves in the work that we do, and now we, we, we're retired or we're long-time unemployed, it's like, well, who am I now? And a great example of this, again, using Marvel, I'm sorry, I'm a Marvel junkie, is Doctor Strange in the movie, in his first movie, where he was this well-respected, well-known surgeon, and he has a car accident, and both his hands are damaged, and he can't do his job anymore. And he goes through this whole identity crisis, which is the result of that, because he's like, who am I now that I can't do the thing that I've lived my whole life preparing to do? Identity crisis destabilization. A third thing that can happen when we rely on categories is that we're always insecure. We're always insecure because if we've invested so much of ourselves into these categories, we, we've so identified with these categories. And we know this in the reality. Now we have this thing uh, where sociologists call gender politics. And that refers to you know, our culture that invests so much of themselves into these categories that any threat to that any attack to that is taken very, very personally. 
And the danger is that we lose ourselves. And so we guard these categories with our life. We, we, we're, so, we're so insecure that any threat, any attack is to attack me. To question my sexuality or to question my gender or to question my identity in any way feels like you're questioning the very core of who I am as a person. That's why it feels so personal and, and scary. And so we see it as a threat that at any, at any way we need to protect ourselves from. So you can see that these categories are helpful, but over-reliance on them can be really, really unhelpful for us in knowing who we really are and being able to live confidently in the world. So what would happen if we were to anchor and ground our identity in Jesus? How would that change our lives? Well, let me be perfectly honest with you. In, in an external sense, probably not a lot. Because all of a sudden, you're not going to stop being a father or a mother or an electrician or a, you know, a banker or whatever it is. Those categories will probably still remain as they will describe and, and tell people about how you spend your days and, and the work that God's called you to do in the world and, and how you live your life and who you are in, in a broader sense. So it might not change a lot externally, but what grounding your identity in Christ will do is change you on the inside. It will transform your sense of who you are so that in the seasons of life, as those other categories change over time and as different things happen and you encounter different changes of circumstances and and those things are, are threatened or challenged or shift or change, there will be a stability that you bring into those changing categories. So even though the externals might not change, you'll be a different person and you'll be different in all of those categories. You'll be a a transformed, Christ-centered, confident person throughout the seasons of life. And what you'll also find is that when those things are threatened, when those things begin to shift and change and move inevitably as they will do, as life just happens to all of us, you'll find our loving Father, our God, in the middle of all of that, stripping away your idols of the false self, stripping away the things that you reach out to and put your confidence in instead of Him and inviting you to reach out for Him instead. And let me be honest with you, that's a scary journey. It it's, can be quite destabilizing. It can be quite distressing. But we can... We don't have to fear it and we can be encouraged because it is our God's way of bringing us deeper into Him, deeper into our identity in Him. And it's a difficult process, but an incredibly liberating and wonderful process. And it's because God wants to strip away our false selves and our false identities and the traps and the boxes we put ourselves in so that we can really be who He created us to be. So with that in the background... I want to bring us to, I guess, our first topic of conversation as we begin this series, our first identity marker in Christ that we're going to be looking at, and that is the idea that we are loved. We are loved, and in some ways, this is such a key and foundational one. It's, it's in some ways, the one that every other identity is built on. We begin our journey knowing, first and foremost, that we are beloved children of our Father, And every other identity, every other category, every other thing that would shape and define us is anchored in this one truth. J.I. Packer said this, 
If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. It's pretty, pretty profound. Sinclair Ferguson, an author and pastor, he said this, the truth that God is our Father lies at the heart of understanding the whole of the Christian life and all of the diverse elements in our daily experience. It is the fundamental way for Christians for the Christian to think about himself or herself. Our self-image, if it is to be biblical, will begin just here. Powerful. You are loved. You are loved. Um, There was a song that David Crowder wrote um, a while ago, and we still sing it every now and again, how, How He Loves. And one of the lines in that song talks about knowing his affections for me, knowing, realizing, appreciating, coming to understand his affections for me. My question for you this morning is how well do you appreciate and understand God's affections for you? You see, many of us can get our head around the fact that God saved us because of his grace and his love and for his glory, that as his creatures, he reached out to us in compassion and mercy and rescued us. We, we can understand that. We can understand the gospel that way. And, and we can kind of get our head around the fact that God reached out to us in our desperate state as creatures and, and redeemed and rescued us. But this idea that God pursues us passionately out of love and unconditional love that's devoted and committed to us, like the love of the prodigal's father who runs out to meet him, this, this all-consuming love that, that God has for you and, and me, that he likes you, that he, he saved you because he enjoys you being with him and you knowing him, that kind of idea of love, sometimes we struggle with. We struggle with. And so my prayer for us today and, and throughout this series is that we get a revelation of that in our hearts because it's, it's not going to come from here. I'm, I'm hoping that as I preach and as we come around God's word and as we think about these things, that yes, you will learn and hear truths, but it's got to take the Holy Spirit moving it from here to here. When you understand as a revelation God's heart of love for you. So before we kind of look at some of the specifics of that, what are some of the enemies that we will face along the way? What are some of the threats to this idea that we are God's beloved children? Well, firstly, it's, it's the world. In the world, we're constantly told this message that there's no such thing as a perfect father. No such thing as unconditional love. No such thing as safe, caring, present, providing, protecting love of a father. It doesn't exist. And you know the sad reality is when we look around the world, we see that that's true. We see the damage and the hurt and the pain that bad parenting, not just fatherhood, it's mothers there as well, but mothers and fathers have caused on the next generation. We see absent parents. We see absent fathers. We see abuse, violence, a whole bunch of different things that are perpetuated on the next generation that brings damage and hurt. And intuitively, we nod our heads and go, yeah, that's true. There is no such thing as a perfect father or perfect love. But you know the strange thing is that on the one hand, we we long for that perfect love. We want to know the unconditional love of a father. 
but we also find ourselves suspicious of it. And we go, could it really be true? And the sad reality is that personally, not just in our awareness of the world, but in our own lives, we've experienced so much hurt, so much pain from our fathers, maybe even from our mothers. And so we, we're negatively bent to not receive God's fatherly love in our hearts. The second threat to this, the identity, the thief that will come is yourself, is our own flesh. And, and this one comes as we look at ourselves and we, we realize our brokenness and we see how messed up we are and we tell ourselves, surely I am not worthy to be loved that way. Surely I'm unlovable. Surely I don't deserve that kind of love. It's like the, the younger son in the prodigal story who comes back after he's messed life up so much and, and he says, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. And see, you, you know you. You know what you've done. You know how you're living now. You, you know all the ways that you fail and all your disappointments and all the things that frustrate you about how you live your life for God. You know all of that. And so you are your own worst enemy in that sense. You are your own thief that doesn't let you receive the Father's love because you disqualify yourself. And you say, I'm unlovable and unworthy. The third enemy, the third thief is probably the most sinister. It's the devil himself. And what he does is he tells you that you will never be enough. You'll never be enough. He'll tell you that, you know what? In those moments when you feel that you're letting God down, he'll say you're a slave, so you better work even harder. And you've got to work and work and work and keep working and keep working really, really hard to earn the Father's love. And your acceptance and your approval before the Father is based on you getting it right. It's based on your accomplishments, your achievements, and your behavior. And if you get it wrong, if you have a misstep, you're out. And he lies and he tells you that you need to work harder and harder to earn the Father's love. Or he comes along and says, you know what? You're an orphan. You're an orphan. You've been abandoned. You've been rejected. Particularly this one is when circumstances just go all wrong. And your world falls apart. And he'll come along and say, you know why? That's because your father has abandoned you. He's failed you. He's let you down. He's rejected you. And you're all alone. And you will never be loved enough. You'll never be loved enough. Or he'll come and tell you, you know what? You're an illegitimate child. You're the unwanted child. And you'll never be as good as the real ones. You, you'll never be good as the other person. You'll never be good enough. You, you'll never have as much talent. You'll never be as successful. You'll, you'll never have as, as many abilities and talents as the other sons and daughters. You'll, you'll never be good enough. And those lies, they get inside our head and our heart and they rob us of who we are in Christ. But the Bible has something very, very different to tell us. So if you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read this scripture from the NLT because I think it really brings it out quite well. And we're just going to look at two verses and I want to draw your attention to a few observations from this passage that I pray will be like truth that shines into your heart today and that will powerfully pierce the lies of the enemy your own self-talk, the wrong thoughts and ideas of the world that we live in. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says this, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself 
through Jesus Christ. Listen to this. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Just let the truth of this passage just sink in. I'm going to read it again before I highlight some things for you. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Firstly, we're told that God loved us, past tense, loved us before he made the world. See, before you did or didn't do anything right or wrong, God loved you. Before there was any scorecard, before your performance mattered, before you could do anything to earn anything, God loved you. He loves us before the foundation of the world. See, God's love for you is not based on your character. It's based on his. And he's the God who loves. The second thing we're told by Paul here is that God chose us. God chose us from before eternity. You are worth God choosing. And he chose us to become something. Not because we, we, were all, we had it all together and we, we were going to represent him well and we were going to be great sons and daughters. No, he chose us in Christ to become something, to become more like him, to be holy and without fault in his eyes. That's who you are, without fault in the Father's eyes because he chose you to become that. He chose you. The third thing we're told is that God, he adopted us. God decided in advance, verse 5, to adopt us into his own family. Now again, in our culture, adoption has a bad rep. But in biblical culture, it meant equal standing as a true born son in the family. An adopted person was given all the rights and all the privileges of being like every other son in the house. They weren't second class people. And Paul is saying here that that's what God has done for each of you, each of us, that we have been adopted. We've been brought into the family of God. We're God's kids. The Bible says we are co-heirs with Jesus, who is the true born son, who is the legitimate son, who is the one and only son. And all of us have been brought in and adopted. And now we have the same relational standing, the same love, the same intimacy, the same rights, the same privileges as Jesus. Like that alone is a mind-blowing thought when you know how much the Father loves the Son. That's you, loved, chosen, adopted. And if that's not enough, Paul goes on to say that the Father sacrificed for us because all of this happened through Jesus Christ. You see, it's not because you did anything. Even in natural adoption, what baby can do anything to contribute to that process? Nothing. That's what Paul wants us to understand, that God the Father did this for each of you. He sacrificed the true-born son, his one and only son, so that he can bring you and me into that same relationship. He gave up the thing that was the most precious thing to him, the thing, the person that he loved the most, his own son, he gave up to bring you and me who weren't sons 
who were orphans, who were rejected, who were abandoned, who were broken, who were in our sin, who did not love him, who were far from him, who had rejected him, to bring us home through Jesus the Son. He sacrificed for you. And the last thing that we're told here that is so encouraging is that this is what he wanted to do. It was his will. It was what he chose to do. His hand wasn't twisted behind his back. He wasn't manipulated. He wasn't forced. He looked at you. He looked at me and he said, I want you to be in my family. And more than that, not just a want, but it pleased him. It brought him joy. It brought him pleasure. He delighted to bring you into his family. So you're not a slave. You see, because you don't have to work to earn the Father's love because the Son did the work for you. The true Son did the work on the cross for you when He died in your place. You don't have to be an orphan because the Father came looking for you. He didn't reject you. He didn't abandon you. John chapter 1 tells us He became one of us to save us, to redeem us, to bring us back to Himself. We're not illegitimate children. We're not half-born, lesser, second class. No, because of the Son Himself coming and being a part of the Father's plan, He shares with us His inheritance. He welcomes us into His inheritance. And He's made us equal with the Son. That's who we are. Our roles and our categories might change through life. People might have said things and spoken things over us. The world might want to push us into a mold and try to force us to pretend to be something that we're not. We might wrestle with insecurity, wondering if we we, we can be loved because we know the stuff that we've done, our past, our failures, and we don't think we're lovable or worthy. Or maybe the devil's been saying to you, you're a slave, you're an orphan, you're an illegitimate child, you don't matter. You're not enough. You're not good enough. You can't do enough. But I pray that you will just let the word of God speak into those places and the Holy Spirit to bring revelation into your heart. Before I kind of wrap up in the last session, I just feel to just take a moment. I ask you to bow your head and just close your eyes and let the word of God just speak into you right now. Father, I don't want to move on. I just sense your spirit at work here. Lord, I, I, I sense that there have been people here whose identity has been so twisted and marred. And Lord, in this moment, that revelation and light and healing is coming into those places. Holy Spirit, will you do your work right now? Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you lift those things off people right now? Oh, those things that have trapped them and imprisoned them, those words, those hurts, break it off them, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And bring healing, I pray, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. If, the, if Tim, you can jump up. As I wrap up, just want to talk a little bit about how this truth ought to transform us. Some things that maybe can flow out of understanding God's love for us, understanding that we are beloved children of God. Firstly, I think it ought to create in us a longing to be with the Father 
And I've, you know, put some images up there and they're all women because it's Mother's Day. But I hope you can do the juggling in your head. But there would be a sense that when we understand the love of the Father, that we just want to be with Him want to spend time in his presence. See, God wants to be your comfort. He wants to be your shelter. He wants to be the one that leads you and guides you. He wants to be the one that calms your fears. He wants to be the one that shines light into your darkness. He, He wants to be the one that holds you close. But all of that is found in his presence, not outside of it. And when we understand that, there's a longing that comes into our heart just to be with him. The second thing I think that it would result in is a desire to be like him. And I remember our kids used to do this, dress up like Dash and me and pretend to be us. But when we again understand how much the Father loves us, we just want to be like him. The Bible says, be holy for I am holy. And Jesus said, be forgiving, be generous, be compassionate, be merciful. Why? Because your heavenly Father is like that and when we've received the love of the father when we know how much we're loved we will want to be more and more like him a longing and a desire to reflect him in how we live what's the next one a security in his care absolutely and jesus reminded us in matthew 6 you don't need to be anxious and worried your father knows And in Zephaniah 3, it says this incredible thing in verse 17, for the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty warrior. I love that. He will take delight in you with gladness, with his love. Listen to this. He will calm all your fears and he will rejoice over you with joyful songs. It's finding that secure and safe place in the Father's arms. The last one is an end to the striving of trying to prove yourself. This is incredible. This freedom that comes when you know you're loved. You don't have to try and pretend to try and be somebody. You don't have to try and work to earn people's approval, to please God, to appease God. You find this incredible freedom that comes from knowing I am loved. First and foremost, I am a beloved child of the Father. And as life changes in every circumstance, whether I have kids or I don't, or my kids leave home or not, if I lose my job, if I have to move countries and embrace a new culture, whatever the changing circumstances, I am loved. I am loved. And there's a freedom that comes from not having to try and be anything other than who God's created me to be because I know in that person, with all the mess, with all the brokenness, with all the failures, with all the disappointments, I am loved. I'm loved. Why don't you stand and we're going to sing this song and then I'm going to pray. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church Podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.